Good morning, Westgate. How's everybody doing? Excited to worship together? Let's do it. Heaven thundered and the world was born. Life begins and ends in the dust you form. Faith commanded and the mountains move. Fear is losing ground to our hope in you.
morning, Westgate Chapel, and welcome to you, you who are also worshiping worshiping with us online. My name is Adam Just, the adult ministry pastor here at Westgate, and it's so good to be a part of God's family here worshiping together. Um, if uh, you are new here to Westgate, we are thankful that you're here. You can take one of those connect cards that are in the pew rack in front of you, um, fill that out and take it out to our guest service uh, table right outside the main lobby after uh, our service, and um, that way we can get to know you a little better, and we also have a gift for you. Also, anyone else that wants to take the Connect card and any update information, sign up for uh, any of our upcoming events, or share any prayer requests with us, you can do that using the Connect card as well. I do want to say uh, we're having a party uh, after the service. Um, it is a new people party, and if you are newer to Westgate and you want to learn a little bit more about uh, who we are, what we do, what our vision is, um, what we like really believe Jesus has called us to do. Please join us after the service today um, from 12 to 1 at Pizza Party and meet a bunch of the staff and we will love to get to know you uh, better. And that'll be out uh, down the hall by what we, the room we call the refinery. There's signs, balloons, all that stuff. So take a, a look at that. Um, also, you can always tune in to our Westgate app or the events tab on our website for upcoming events. Um, one coming up in a few weeks is a women's conference. So ladies, if you want a time period just to get away, to rest, to be recharged, to hear some encouraging messages um, from our uh, spiritual growth director, Kendra Sankovich, and also Ann Thornton, please um, check out the app and also our events page as well. Uh, next week, we are having a life group sign-up event. So life groups are one of the backbone pieces of, of our ministry here at Westgate. And I wanted to invite David Ward to come up to share a life group story with all of us. So David. What's up, guys? My name is David. Um, sometimes I'm up here singing on the stage. I don't have my guitar with me today, so um, if I start dancing around too much, if you guys could just start singing Footloose, and it'll calm me right down. All right. Um, all that's to say, um, how many of you guys value being uh, known, cared for, and prayed for? Anybody? Yes, I think it's important. Um, maybe that's just a me thing, though. I don't know. Um, but how many of you guys feel known, cared for, and prayed for by me, David? A couple of you. My wife said yes. All right. Cool. Um, Paul said yes, too. He's in my life group. Um, my life group knows me, they've heard my story, they've cared for me through this year, and they've prayed for me. And I've gotten to know the stories of my life group. I've gotten to care for them, walk with them through life, and pray with them this year. Man, that's freaking cool. I get so excited about that. Um, in 2019, I, I was, I was uh, traveling around this great nation trying to find a place to work. Um, I lived in Astoria, Oregon for a month. For a month each, I lived Astoria, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, Tacoma, Washington, San Bernardino, California, back to Eugene, Oregon, Peoria, Illinois, Norman, Oklahoma, um, Toledo, Ohio, and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and then spent a month driving around to 12 different interviews in the Midwest. And by about the eighth month of that, I, I knew that you can listen to all the Tim Keller sermons in the world. You can watch all of the 
Rich Mullins YouTube videos from 1990 and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our God is an awesome God. And still, if you're not walking in community with other people, not being known, loved, and cared for, and prayed for by other people, it's, it's really hard to know that you're really following Jesus in that moment. Um, and you guys, maybe you guys didn't have to travel that far to figure that out. Um, it, took, it took me a while. Uh, all, all that's to say, um, I got involved with a life group when I was here um, in Toledo, ultimately came back to Toledo, and here I am. So that's all great. Um, I signed up, uh, so I knew, I, know, I knew that at the beginning of this year, and I work a 60-hour-a-week job with the most random schedule you could possibly imagine. So making a weekly commitment was like, not, not going to be something I could fulfill. And trust me, my life group knows for this first six months after we signed up, I was there two meetings. And then uh, for the last half of the year, I, I've been able to make it more faithfully. And so we meet every first and third thir- uh, Sunday of each month. Every, every couple weeks I get um, knowledge drops from, from like Dave and Sue McMullian who are like the, the experienced folks in our life group. And we've got people in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And so we get to learn from all those other people, get known, cared for, prayed for. We've walked with people through their, their family having just heartbreaking times. We've walked through pe- with people through health problems. We've walked with people um, trying to figure out how to parent teenagers. We've walked with newlyweds in our life group this year. And it's just been so special to, that each time everybody knows they're known, cared for, and prayed for. Um, and so um, basically, we, I just want that for you guys. And, and so we're, we got our life group sign up coming up next week. I want you to get involved with that. Some people have groups that aren't technically life groups and um, but as long as you're being known, cared for, and prayed for, we want to encourage that. And, and like you say, yes, all right, to that. Um, so all that's to say, um, I just want you to know that in the past year, um, how many of you guys know that I have a son due in nine days? Yeah, that's my son. Come on. I'm so excited about that. But let me tell you what, that kid has been prayed for by my life group from the moment they knew he existed. And Thanks to Hillary Suan, even before that. Um, uh, so all that's to say, guys, uh, being in a life group is one of the most tangible ways that you can experience the love of God in your life through his people being known, cared for, and prayed for. And so um, I just want to encourage you to sign up for a life group um, and, and see how God can work in your life through doing that. Thank you, David. Life group is definitely a great way that we experience community. Another way that we want to experience community is by just getting to know each other better, even here Sunday morning. So why don't you stand up and, and turn around, look around, go greet each other this morning.
we're going to continue. We're going to continue in our worship together. Falling down. 
to be in our own strength, in our own striving, in our own efforts, Lord. It's all through the gift of your Holy Spirit that you, the fullness of creator God, you're living in us. We have full access to that power. I thank you, God, that you are moving even in this room, Lord Jesus. Lord, every burden that is carried into this place, God, have your way. We just give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please continue in our worship by giving back? Um, you can take the offering buckets in the middle there and pass those out. Thank you so much. There we go. Now I'm on. Good morning, church family. It is good to be together. If you don't know me, my name is Rob Zerman, lead pastor here uh, at Westgate, and uh, just super excited to be diving into uh, God's word together this morning, kicking off a new year. Can you believe? Well, I'm kicking off the new year. as the first time I've been preaching this year, but can you believe how fast 2022 went? I mean, seriously, so fast. But I'm excited uh, to continue diving in, excited about the series uh, that we're going to be going through together. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 again uh, this morning as we continue in the series that Pastor Randy began us on last week. And uh, as you are turning there, let me ask you this question. How many of you uh, like, 
let me begin with a different caveat. I know there are no mountains in Ohio, but I know you've moved outside of Ohio at some point in your life. How many of you like driving in the mountains? Anybody here like driving in the mountains? I love driving in the mountains. There's nothing better. Uh, growing up in Southern California from the time I was in uh, late high school and got my license uh, all the way through college, one of my favorite things to do was to head up to the mountains and to be able to drive in those, on those mountain roads. Oftentimes as a youth intern or even as a youth pastor, I was taking students up to camps, uh, or I had a bunch of friends, even my wife, who worked up at a camp in Big Bear, California in the mountains, about 7,000 feet up there, and uh, sometimes it was to go skiing, but I loved it, and I would always take the front uh, path or the front road up the mountain to Big Bear. Uh, I loved it because the front path uh, had constant switchbacks all the way up uh, the mountain. It was, it was pretty curvy, and the higher up you got, the more incredible the view be became as you began to look out. I should put a caveat on that as well, though. The more beautiful it was, as long as the wind was blowing and the smog hadn't filled the basin. But aside from that, it was a gorgeous and beautiful view the higher up that you went. And as I wound up those roads, uh, I believed in this certain theory that my wife hated, uh, still hates today. Anybody here ever practice this on mountain driving? I believe in what's called taking the path of least resistance. Do you know what I'm talking about? So, okay, I, I like to drive a little quick going up and especially down the mountain. And the path of least resistance is where you just kind of ignore that middle line and pretend that the whole road is yours, right? As long as a car is not coming, you just, you don't have to turn as hard. You can move a little bit quicker. All right, don't practice that if you go to the mountains. But um, I loved making that quick drive up the mountains. On one side of the road was the mountain and the sheer cliff. On the other side was a complete drop off thousands of feet down below uh, that would lead to nothingness. And one of the things as you drive up that you notice is that the entire cliff side on the right as you're driving up is, uh, is lined with a, uh, with a guardrail. And I never thought a whole lot about those guardrails and what their real purpose was until one specific trip up that mountain uh, in particular. I remember when I was in college, um, I actually was not only the student ministry intern, but I was helping as a student to lead our college ministry. And we decided to have a, uh, a college retreat up in in Big Bear, California, and uh, there were about 15 of us that piled into the church van, and we're going to head up for the weekend. And we had a really beautiful, wonderful drive, about 45 minutes to the base of the mountain, to be at about another 45 minutes to an hour up the mountain. And uh, as we went, as we began to come close to the base of the mountain and start heading up, there was a slight rain that started, and things began to change. About 10 minutes into the drive of the switchbacks, there's this little pullout area where if it begins to snow, they force you to come out and put chains on on your tires. And as we reached that place, uh, snow had begun to fall. So everybody had to pull out. Uh, if you don't have chains, you had to purchase, you guys know I'm talking about putting chains on your tires, right? When I moved to Ohio, I was like, okay, it snows here. I was like, hey, where do I buy chains for my car? And I just got laughed at. Okay. So, so I get it here. We know how to drive, but on mountain roads, you throw those chains on. And so uh, the interesting thing is when we got <clears throat> to that place and stopped. We actually got stuck there for about an hour because I didn't really know how to put the chains on. And after I put them on, drove, started to drive away, they wrapped around the axle and we got stuck. So after an hour of a little bit of snow and then somebody comes and cuts the chains off for us, we get them back on. It had gone from a light snow to a heavy snow, literally to the point that you could barely see in front of the van. And as we began to start out from this pullout, having about another 35-minute drive in front of us, uh, it was a little bit dicey, to say the least. 
Uh, it took us uh, over an hour as the snow continued to get heavier and heavier. Ice began building up on the roads. And even though I was driving incredibly slow, the van at times would slide. And then the girls in the back would start screaming. And, you know, I'd be like, stop it. I can't do anything about it, you know. And then there was very little visibility. But one of the things that I noticed is that there were many cars that were actually sliding off of the road and into those guardrails where just on the other side was a sheer, sheer drop off. I have never in my life been more thankful for those guardrails that lined that road. I want us to begin with a small sermonette this morning as we dive and continue in our series entitled Guardrails, taking a look together at the Ten Commandments. And if you have your notes, I'd encourage you to pull them out with me and follow along. Uh, I've got a question that I want us to think about, though, this morning uh, as we begin. What is the purpose of guardrails? Like, what purpose do they serve? I find and have found in my experience that there are two main things that stand out to me. The first one is this, that they are a warning of danger that is ahead. The guardrails serve the purpose of helping you to know that there is something that if you go beyond them, there is danger or destruction in your future. And so they kind of paint a picture for you to be careful. But secondly, not only are they a warning of danger that may be ahead, but they are also meant to preserve life. In a moment, they are meant to help preserve your life uh, so that you don't go plunging off of that cliff. As we think about the purpose of guardrails in our mountain driving, what I find is that the Ten Commandments actually serve a very similar purpose for God's people. The Ten Commandments serve a purpose of help of warning us of danger that is ahead. That if we are not careful and we move into certain spaces, that it will bring sure destruction to our lives. God's law that he wrote in the Ten Commandments was meant to point people to something that was better, but also to warn them of the fact that there was danger and destruction ahead if they would continue. But as well, the Ten Commandments serve that purpose of preserving life, truly helping us to experience the fullness of life that God desires for us and offers to us. So what I want us to see as we continue through this series together over the next many weeks is that ultimately the Ten Commandments do four things. The first thing is this. They reveal to us God and his character. They reveal God and his character to us. It's been said that you can learn a lot about a person by knowing what matters most to them. And as God gives these instructions to his people as they were walking with him, and you read through the Ten Commandments, I'd encourage you to do this this week. Read through the Ten Commandments and just think about what are the things that I learn about who God is and about his character. Some of the things that stand out to me are things like his power and how he has power over all things, that he is the almighty God of whom there is no greater. In the Ten Commandments, I also see his compassion and his love for his people. Not only do I see compassion and love, but I learn more about his character as I see how God is faithful. As I learn that God is a God of truth who stands on truth and is the very embodiment of truth. But one of the key attributes that stands out to me, character traits of God that is revealed, is his holiness. The holiness of God. When we think of the holiness of God, holiness refers to the absolute moral purity of God. Not only is God just a little bit holy, but as we sang this morning, God is really, really 
really holy. All throughout the Bible was the one attribute that you see of God that is repeated three times to emphasize just how holy God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it teaches us that not only is he perfectly good, but God is the very source and standard of goodness. In other words, God himself is completely set apart from everything else that is in all creation. Nothing is like him. Nothing has his power. Nothing has his goodness. There is nothing completely holy and absolutely pure as God is. But not only does holiness refer to the absolute moral purity of God, but also to the absolute moral distance between God and his creation. God's holiness is a reminder to us that as humans, we are not holy. And that brings us to our next point. What the Ten Commandments also do is not only do they reveal God and his character to us, but they expose the heart of human rebellion. They expose the heart of human rebellion. If we're honest with ourselves, when we read the Ten Commandments, we don't like rules. None of us do. When we grow up, we don't like rules. It's the one thing that people complain about the church. It's just a bunch of rules. It's all about following the rules. We push against the rules. And you know what? You may even look at me today and say, as a Christian, you know what? I've learned to love the rules. They're good. They give me guidance. They help me to worship God. But all of us would find us as well in that place of recognizing that as much as you try to follow the rules, you consistently fail. You find yourself consistently falling into sin, not quite measuring up. It's because as we look at God's law and the Ten Commandments, what it does is it exposes that in our hearts there is a rebellion against God and his ways that exists. And so what does this do? Next point, it shows us our need for God. It helps us to understand the depth of our need for God, that no matter how hard we try to follow the rules, to be good enough, we never will. We always sin and will always fall short. Have you ever tried hard, desperately to not sin? You know, that thing that you constantly struggle with? Maybe it's impure thoughts. Maybe it's your anger and the way that you speak to people or to your family or people that you love. Maybe it's in the area of gossip. I mean, we could go through a whole list of things. What is that thing that you have tried so hard to master in your own strength and to, to not struggle with his sin? What we recognize is that we may have moments where we can white knuckle it and be good enough, but we always seem to fail. And what it does is it shows us our need for God. And even more than that, it shows us our need for a savior. And so what the 10 commandments also then do is this beautiful truth is that they point to God's plan for human flourishing. They point to God's plan for human flourishing, that God has something so much better for you, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is where we find this fulfillment and can try and find true human flourishing as we place our faith and our trust in him. And so as we continue in this series this morning, I want us to take a look at Exodus chapter 20 together. We began in verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read those again this morning. We're going to tack on verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. I'm going to be reading uh, from the NIV this morning, which will actually be up here on the screen. But follow along with me, Exodus chapter 20, again, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And God spoke all these words, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." We looked at these last week as Pastor Randy uh, shared with us from verses one through six. And here's what he covered. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment was predicated on what the Lord actually did for the Israelites in Egypt. And we see that at the very, in the very first verses. He literally looks at them and says, I saved you. I rescued you. I delivered you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the reason that he says this is to remind them of the greatness by which he accomplished this. They would no doubt be reminded when he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. They would be reminded of Moses' staff that was used to perform incredible miracles. They would no doubt be reminded of how the Nile River was turned to blood before the very eyes of Pharaoh and the nation. They would be reminded clearly of the plagues that God sent, not only on on Egypt, but also on the people and on the Pharaoh himself as a way to show his power over all created things, even over the many gods that were worshiped within Egypt, displaying his power in incredible ways. He would cause them to remember how when they finally left Egypt and Pharaoh began to chase after them, that he parted the Red Sea to allow them to walk through on dry ground and then allow it to close over the army so that they would be saved and destruction would come to Pharaoh and his armies. When you look at this and you think about what Jesus says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, he's reminding them literally, why would you trust in any other so-called God? What does any other God have? Why would you trust yourself? Where would you get that from? I defeated Pharaoh. I proved that all other gods are nothing more than a sham. You can trust me. I am. I am the almighty God, creator of all things, the one who controls all things in heaven and on earth. You see, God knew and he understood just how easy it would be for his people to continually worship other gods. And we see that throughout Israel's history. But he instructs them that the way to experience human flourishing in this life is by worshiping the one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. But then he also says, you shall not make for yourself an image of anything and bow down to it and worship them. You're not to make images of God that lower who God is, that don't rise up to his glory and how magnificent he is. You're not to create other images of other beings and to worship them. We think of the golden calf that the Israelites fashioned themselves. He says, you are not to make these images as the one and only true God of whom there is and never will be anything greater. I demand your allegiance. And God demands our allegiance to him and to him alone. Pretty straightforward, right? First six verses feels pretty good. We get the idea that there is one God and he desires our allegiance. He wants our fidelity. But this morning as we dive into the third commandment, 
what I find is this, is that not only do we at times take this commandment very lightly, we also don't have a very clear understanding of the commandment itself at times within the church. And what I want us to see in this third commandment this morning is this, is that not only is God concerned with our fidelity, as we have seen in these first two commandments, that we would worship him and worship him alone, but he is also deeply concerned that we would worship him rightly. And I want you to write that down somewhere this morning. God's concern is that you would worship him rightly. In verse 7, of Exodus chapter 20, the third commandment reads this way. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. If you have the ESV or another version, it might read like this, and most people recognize it most read in this way. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I want us to begin by answering this question this morning. Why is it that God's name is so important that protecting it is one of the 10 foundational commandments that we see that God gives to his people? Well, the first point is this. Number one, we need to recognize, and this is true in our culture, that names hold value because they identify us. Literally, they represent our identity. When somebody speaks your name, they have a picture that comes to their mind of who you are. Names hold value. How do I know this is true? Have you ever had somebody misuse your name before in a way to make fun of you and it grated at your soul? Anybody here ever, ever had that experience? Okay, a little moment of honesty. How many of you have used somebody else's name before in order to make fun of them? Come on, honesty. I had like one guy in the back of the room for a service that was willing, like sitting there shaking his head and like waving his hands. I was like, all right, one honest guy in the room, right? We have all had that experience. I remember that when I was in elementary school, it's kind of like that child's playground thing. I was out there, and there was this young man uh, in, in my elementary school whose name was Eddie. And one of the things that we learned about Eddie is that he hated his first name, which was not Eddie, it was Edward. And uh, when we found this out, our whole intent was basically to make his life miserable. So we ran around. Every time we'd see him out on the playground, I was like, Edward! And we'd try to say it as, as, as crazy as we could. And let me tell you something, I have never seen somebody rage so hard over saying their name, uh, their, their given name like that, but we knew that it would drive him nuts. Uh, never mind the fact, by the way, that my middle name is Edward, I didn't let people know that, but you know, that's, that's an aside. But you know, we would, we would go after him, you know, but I also can remember when I was in middle school that I had, there was this one guy like, and that was middle school, junior high, anybody amen with me, those were rough years, but Going through those years, there was this one person, even into early high school, that would make fun of me constantly and not call me by my name, but call me Bobbert. Don't do it. <laughs> I know how you guys work. He would walk around, call me Bobbert. And why did it grate at my soul? Because he was devaluing me. My identity is wrapped up in my name. And when our names are misused purposefully, it is often done to devalue us and who we are. The same is true of God. God has an incredible and a holy name, and it identifies him. It helps us to know something about how great he is. Second point, everywhere you see God's name in scripture, it is exalted in the highest possible terms. 
I want you to listen to this list of scripture verses that I'm gonna read to you that speak of just how exalted God's name is. In Psalm chapter eight, verse one, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Psalm 29, verse two, it says, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. In Psalm 135, verse 13, it says, your name, Lord, endures forever. Your renown, Lord, through all generations. In Matthew chapter six, verse nine, as we're being taught to pray, we are taught to say, hallowed or holy is your name. In Acts chapter four, verse 12, it says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Romans 10, 13, the apostle Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Philippians chapter two, verses 10 through 11 says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that he is Yahweh, he is God, to the glory of God the Father. Man, everywhere we look in scripture, God's name is exalted in the highest possible terms. Why? Because it represents his identity to us. Next point, God's name reveals his holy character and the reverence and respect that is due him as one who is set apart. If we are to worship God rightly, we must have a deeper understanding and a deeper respect for who he is, as the one who is set apart from all of creation, of who there is no one in this world that is majestic and glorious and righteous and holy like he is. And so as we think of this this morning, that if we're going to have a deeper understanding and respect, or we need to have a deeper understanding and respect in order to worship God rightly, I want us to understand then what is involved in taking God's name in vain. And this is where I think sometimes in the church we don't really get the complexity that is involved even within this commandment. The literal translation of taking God's name in vain is this, to take up God's name falsely, uselessly, or for no good. Say it again. The literal translation from the Hebrew is to take up God's name falsely, uselessly or for no good. You can even say carelessly. It also carries the idea of an emptiness, of an emptying of his name. And I want you to think of it because oftentimes when we think of taking God's name in vain and and what that means, the first thing that comes to mind is what is most apparent, and it is this, to blaspheme or to curse God's name, to blaspheme or curse his name. An example, as we look in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, as the law is continuing to be given, it says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Like this was a serious offense. Now, I want to define for you, for those of you that don't quite get it, the word blaspheme. The word blaspheme very simply means to speak irreverently about God. 
to speak irreverently about God. In other words, to degrade or to lessen the greatness of his name. And this is how we most often think of using the Lord's name in vain. When we talk about using the Lord's name in vain, we, we, we think of people who uh, will associate God's name with a cuss word or we'll think of somebody who uses his name as an exclamation, using the name of Jesus Christ in order to make some sort of uh, profane uh, exclamation. That is how we most often think about it. And let me tell you something. Uh, I cannot stand when people use the Lord's name in vain in this way. Uh, a number of years ago, when I was out in California golfing with uh, a couple of friends, uh, myself and a youth pastor, we uh, actually, it was, it was me and one guy, we were out golfing together and we were paired up with two other guys on the golf course and uh, we went and one of the guys that we were paired up with had no idea who they were. I kid you not, he used the Lord's name in vain in about every swear word that has ever been written about every 30 seconds on the golf course from holes one through nine. Every time he swung a club, there was some sort of way Lord's name in vain, throwing out a GD, throwing out uh, the name of Jesus and all other sorts of things. And it was one of those things, literally my ears began to bleed. It was getting so bad, like grating at my soul. And then we finally get right up to the, the, the tee box at the ninth hole, and we're standing there, and this guy finally turns and talks to us instead of throwing uh, horrible prof things, profane things up to the Lord. And he looks at me and my friend and says, hey, what do you guys do? Oh, no. No, you, you can't be asking that, right? And there's like this moment of like, oh, this is about to get really awkward, right? And so my friend very quickly jumps in and says, oh, we work with kids. And I'm like, whoo, saved, right? The guy's like, oh, that's cool. Like at the YMCA, like where, where do you guys work? Oh my goodness, right? Okay, he's pushing in. And so I, I look at him and say, uh, we're pastors. <laughs> he kind of looks at us and turns his head. And then what does he do? He releases the name of Jesus in a way I normally wouldn't and then says, that's bleeping cool. <sighs> and I thought to myself, wow, at least the guy was really secure in who he was. I mean, I, mean, I held on to that. But I want you to think about it. We often think of using the Lord's name in this way. We say to ourselves, as long as I don't use God's name as a swear word or utter the name of Jesus in a moment of anger or exclaim, oh my God, then I'm good. But can I tell you that this week as I've studied this passage, I've been incredibly convicted personally. Because I think at times we've minimized this commandment and our understanding of worshiping God rightly. I may not walk around throwing out a GD or using the name of Jesus wrong or saying, oh my God. But I've been convicted this week that there are many other ways that I use God's name in a way that lessens its value. There are times where in a joking manner with exclamations, making funny statements that I and or many of us will say things that bring down the name of God. Uttering sweet baby Jesus, good Lord have mercy. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Oftentimes, in ways that are meant to denigrate another person or a situation, but not to lift up praise to God. You know, some of you are 
sitting here this morning and you're saying, I hear you. I feel you. Like, that's me. This is one of the areas of my life that I've struggled with. And you would say to me, I have such a hard time controlling my tongue. You feel that weight. There are others here in the room that might look at me today and say, Rob, that's not me. I've got this thing under control. I can't stand it when people do it. I don't do it myself, so I'm good. I'm in the clear. I don't have a problem. This message isn't for me. Maybe it's just for me to go out and encourage other people with. But can I encourage you to hold on for just a moment? Because as we continue, I believe that this is where we have gone wrong in our understanding of really what it means to use the Lord's name in vain or to misuse his name. You see, not only in scripture was it about blaspheming or cursing God's name or using it in a way that would be inappropriate, but we also see in your next bullet point that to use the Lord's name in vain would also be to swear a false oath. Look at Leviticus chapter 19.12. Leviticus 19.12 says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You know, we most commonly think of this occurrence of swearing a false oath in the courtroom where we hear someone that is standing on a stand about to give testimony and they say those words, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What? So help me God, right? In other words, if what I say isn't true, then you know what? Let God deal with me. And the truth is, is one of the warnings that we see in scripture here when it comes to using the Lord's name in vain and profaning the name of the Lord is to swear a false oath. In other words, to knowingly use the name of God for impure motives or purposes in lying to another person. Maybe we've experienced that, maybe not. Another way that we see is this, the next bullet, is to make false claims on God's behalf. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 25, it says, I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. And as I think about this, there are so many places, whether it's in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, where God talks about how there were prophets or people that would come and prophesy in his name and say, in the name of the Lord, God told me that this was going to happen. What does he say? He says, if that does not come about, not only have they prophesied, my name, but you are to take them outside of the city and stone them. He took it incredibly seriously that his name would be, not be misused. And so we have this exa- these examples of, in scripture of blaspheming or cursing God's name or swearing a false oath or making false claims on God's behalf. And we say to ourselves, well, I don't know that I struggle with those things very much, but let's look at these next couple. This one's a little strange. Let me explain it to you. The next one is this is to sacrifice your children to Molech. Say, what? I haven't done that recently. Well, (laughs) ever. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not, what? Profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The worship of Molech was uh, a notorious ancient Eastern religion. Uh, it was known as the, he was, Molech was known as the detestable God of the Ammonites. And he demanded, what was demanded within this religion was child sacrifice. Uh, and while God strictly forbid it with consequences of death in the Mosaic law, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that Israel did worship this God. And often they did participate in the sacrificing of children in the Hinnom Valley, which was just southwest of Jerusalem. As I think about this history, 
It's because of this great evil that God called this valley the valley of slaughter. In Hebrew, it is called topheth, meaning fire pit. And we call it today the Hinnom Valley, and that comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which means hell or fires of hell, because of the fires that would constantly rise up from this valley from the sacrificing of children to Molech. Here's what is most striking, is that God's people participated in the worship of another God with the horrific evil of sacrificing children, even while just across the valley in Jerusalem. They were claiming to worship Yahweh. And there was no conviction of heart with these two things. And what does God say? You are profaning my name. You are bringing my name lower by the things that you do. It makes an interesting point for us to think about that the journey from righteousness to sin can actually be a very short distance in our lives. And it makes this point, that really when we talk about using the Lord's name in vain, not only are we talking about cursing God's name or using it as a curse word, but it also can be anything that brings God's name, his character, or his reputation low. Think about Ezekiel 20, 22, where the prophet Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God, it says, but I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. What he's doing is he's speaking of the people of Israel, God, when he, that whole section of scripture in Ezekiel 20 is where God is like talking about how he brought the Israelites out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land, and even still at this point, throughout this entire journey with him, they are worshiping other gods. They are giving their hearts over to other things in the sight of other nations. And what does he say? I have withheld my hand from them. For the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned. You see, not only can my words profane the name of the Lord, but my actions as a follower of Jesus Christ and one who professes to be a follower of God, my actions can also profane his name. And when I claim to be a follower of Jesus but live out my life in purposeful rebellion, I profane his name. So I want us to think about this. I want the weight of that this morning to sit on us as we consider it. What is the danger then in misusing or profaning the name of God. I have five things. One, when we cheapen God's name, it reveals a lowering of our reverence for God. Literally, when we profane the name of God, whether it be in word or in our actions, when we bring his name lower, it shows a lack of reverence for God and literally gives the devil a foothold in our lives. I want you to think about this morning, what was Satan's greatest lie to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? It was what? God isn't that holy. You can be just like him. The gap between you and him, really small. Just eat from that tree and you can close the gap. What was Satan doing? 
trying to close the holiness gap between us and God, trying to make us believe that God really isn't that great. We cheapen, when we cheapen God's name, it reveals in our own hearts that there is a lowering of our reverence for God. But the other point is this, is that then when we bring God closer to our level, we are far more likely to take him for granted in other areas of our life. When we cheapen his holiness, we don't take him as seriously. And all of a sudden, this little sin or that little sin don't really matter. God doesn't care. It's not a big deal. I mean, I know he's holy, but this is a small one. He's more concerned with the big things of life. And small step by small step, we continue to believe the lie from the garden. And in that process, we deteriorate our own relationship with God. But I want you to catch that when we allow our reverence for God to lower and we cheapen his name in our lives, not only do we begin to, take, begin to take him for granted, not only does it affect us, but it affects others. Number three, because when we cheapen God's name, we also mislead those who are less mature in their faith. And I'll be honest with you, this, this hit me between the eyes this week. As I began to think about like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like there's big ways in my life that I do this, but then I begin to see and look and see all the small ways that I make just small little concessions. A lot of times for me, it's like I'm just trying to be funny with people, things that I say. And yet I recognize that I have young children at home that God has given me, that I am the model to them of who God is. And for just a moment, I want to speak to those of you in the room today that are parents or grandparents. Maybe you work with kids or you work with teenagers. We have such an incredible responsibility to be those who will teach the younger generation that is going to come behind us what it means to revere God and his name is holy. What I've recognized this week is I've got some apologizing to do to my family. Because there are times where I don't hold his name as high as it should be. And I want them to have a very high view of God. We bear that responsibility as parents. We bear that responsibility as those who will be an example to others within the church. When we cheapen his name, whether it be in word or in deed, we mislead those who are less mature in their faith. But as well, we also do this while representing a false picture of God to non-believers. You know, I often hear from people that aren't Christians the, the catchphrase, we've all heard it, that man, people in the church, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. My answer to that was often like, yeah, totally get that, you know, but I would say hypocrites, man, that's where hypocrites are supposed to be in the church. That's the first place they would be. It's kind of like my excuse. But church, I think that's like a phrase we should actually internalize for a moment. I think it's something that we should hold on to. That a world that doesn't know Jesus that will die without him looks at us and sees that while we profess this incredibly great name, that at times our lives lower the worth and value of who God is, our words and our actions. And it makes it really hard to believe in that type of God. There is a world that is watching. There is a world that we are meant to be the image bearers of God too. That when they see us, 
the way that we live, that they would experience God. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect because we won't. We know that we won't. But as the church, we've got to quit purposefully just giving ourselves over to things that we know are wrong and really purposefully seeking holiness that is honoring to God. You know, the danger of misusing God's name as well at the end of this verse is it says that you won't be held guiltless. The only thing I want to say about this is what God does is he makes abundantly clear just how important of a matter it is that we worship God rightly and that we keep his name, not just in our words and the things that we say, the things that we do in church, but in the way that we live our lives, that we keep his name high and holy and that we revere him and give him reverence and worship him with all that we are. There's one final danger I wanna give you. It's not in your notes and it's this. The danger is that we walk away from this passage this morning and that our response is to pull out a checklist and simply to say, all right, commandment number three, I gotta write it on the checklist. I need to do a better job. And I need to try really hard to watch my mouth. I need to watch the ways that I'm I'm living and acting so that my life doesn't uh, not match up with who God is. Like, okay, so I've got my checklist and I need to do a better job. That's probably one of the great dangers as we walk out of this room today. But I want you to hear me clearly. 10 commandments do not serve the purpose of creating for you a to-do list of being a good person in order to be more pleasing to God or to earn his favor or to earn salvation. It is because of Jesus that we don't need to think that way. The 10 commandments aren't about following a set of rules so that I can be good with God. Rather, the 10 commandments serve the purpose of teaching me to worship God rightly, to love him with all of my heart with all of my soul and with all of my mind, that might experience the fullness of the abundant life that he desires to give to me as I walk with him. I want us as a community this morning, and as we walk with God to worship him rightly. And so this morning, I wanna take just a few moments of silence as we close together. I wanna invite you to close your eyes and to bow your heads with me in a moment of prayer and of worship. And I wanna ask you, where's the conviction this morning? What has God been revealing to you about the ways that you have had a habit of misusing his name or bringing it lower? Whether that be with your words or with your actions. What is the way that he is asking you not to create a checklist to do good. You don't need to do that. You have the precious blood of Jesus Christ that covers over your sin. But to learn to worship him rightly and to honor him because of who he is and what he's done, you see the beauty of what Christ accomplished on the cross is that he was the literal fulfillment of the law. The Bible tells us that because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, that when we seek him and ask for forgiveness, it says that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That it's not about how righteous we can be, but we literally receive the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What incredible news, what incredible hope you have, what incredible love God has for us. And so as we prepare to close our morning in worship together, I want us to take a few moments to pray, to ask the Lord to continue to search our hearts and take these next few moments as the band plays quietly 
to just seek the Lord and to ask him for forgiveness for the ways that he reveals that you have been misusing or lowering the value of his name. I want you to ask him to begin a new work in you and to give you the strength through his Holy Spirit and the very precious blood of Jesus Christ to change and to transform your heart. And then with confidence, approach his throne and worship him with all that you are and thank him for the greatness of his name.
with shout of acclamation and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art and sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art and sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art and sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art and sings my soul my Savior God to God is good. So we close our service this morning again, as always, uh, our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you. If there are any needs that you have for healing, things that you are working through with God, you just want someone to talk to, they would love that opportunity this morning. And so uh, please feel free to come up here. They'll be uh, waiting here, my right, your left, and would love to walk with you over to uh, the prayer room. Uh, I've got just three quick kind of housekeeping items for you uh, with church stuff. Want to make you aware of. Uh, First thing is this. Coming up uh, on Sunday the 22nd, two Sundays from today, is our uh, annual meeting. Uh, That morning in our service, we're going to be celebrating the incredible things that we have been seeing God do in our church over this past year, especially as we have launched into our five-year vision initiative, Deep Roots and Broad Reach. We're going to be celebrating a lot of great things together. But then he meets Immediately following the service, second service, we're going to be having a luncheon and our annual business meeting over in the gymnasium. And members, uh, 
uh, or regular attenders, those who aren't members, you are welcome to come and to participate, to listen in, to hear what God is doing in the church. Uh, we would love for you to come and join us uh, again when we go to voting. That is only for the members, but all are welcome. But what we need is our, uh, our deaconesses are going to actually be providing uh, a meal for the church family. And what we need you to do is to let us know that you are planning on sticking around and being with us. And so can I encourage you, whether it's today or next Sunday, to grab a connection card out of the pew, write your family name on it, and just a number of how many people will be coming to the annual meeting luncheon. That will help them as they prepare their meal for us. Again, that's in two weeks from today. Uh, so please be sure to do that, whether it's today or next week. And uh, let us know too, if you have kids, uh, we'll provide uh, some childcare just for the youngest uh, during that business meeting. And so uh, we would encourage you to come and join us. Uh, two things, uh, one important thing that's gonna be happening uh, at the annual meeting is we're gonna have some recommended bylaw changes. And anytime we do this, we uh, pull together a meeting uh, here at the church for people to come and to ask questions. And so maybe jot this down. If you are interested in coming and hearing about those recommendations, asking questions, getting answers, uh, we're going to have one next Sunday, January 15th, immediately following the second service for one hour. It'll be here in this room. And then also we will have one the following Wednesday during uh, Wednesday night kids programming from 645 to 745 in this room. Now you're looking at me saying, yeah, you're saying we're having this meeting, but I don't know what the bylaws are next slide is this. If you would like to get a copy of the recommendations that the elders are putting forward, they are available today at the uh, kiosk in the main entrance. If you stop, you can pick one of these up, read through it, come with your questions. Would encourage you to do so. Church family, especially our membership, engage in these conversations and discussion. This is an important thing as we continue to follow the Lord and lead his church. So again, I want to thank you. Business aside, I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. We serve an incredible, awesome, holy and mighty God, amen. And I pray for you this week that as you go, that you would go out with a burden in your heart to worship him rightly with your words and with your actions, that as you claim his name, that you would bear his image to a world that desperately needs to know him. Lord, be glorified as we give our hearts and our lives to you. We love you, Lord, with all that we are. Help us as we seek to worship you rightly and to keep your name lifted high in our lives. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. God bless you, church. We'll see you this next week.